Hello and welcome back to episode 43 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson, and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases, and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and David Finch's The Killer, my look at David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. We followed that up with the latest edition of the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you take a couple of minutes to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, all of which are films from the 2000s. We start with classics and recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's the highly successful and quite bonkers French film, The Brotherhood of the Wolf. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features Werner Herzog's unheralded jungle escape drama Rescue Dawn. Then it's the one that got away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at original Steven Spielberg-helmed project to make The Trial of the Chicago 7. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the 2007 reboot of a sci-fi classic, The Invasion. Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Our classic for this month is The Brotherhood of the Wolf, and Tom says this is a brilliant film. It looks amazing and is packed with gripping scenes from beginning to end, unlike anything else in the genre. On our hidden gem rescue dawn, Darren says, Great movie, loved it when it came out, but down here in Australia it's quite hard to find nowadays for a rewatch. Dell agrees, excellent film, great story of survival in a hostile environment. A one that got away Steven Spielberg's Trial of Chicago 7, of which Lauren says, I love the version that was eventually made with Aaron Sorkin as director. The version Spielberg would have made would have been from the same script, so I'm not sure how different it would have been, except maybe that the version we got sometimes came across more like a TV miniseries than a film. Our remake hate watches The Invasion, a 21st century version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Terry says a word to the wise, this idea has already been made into two good films and then a third time badly. Surely they knew the odds weren't great that another version would turn out well. Saral adds, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I heard they had some production problems with the movie, which is probably why the message of the film is so weird. Mostly it doesn't make sense, and when it does, it comes across a bit fascist. We'll also be discussing a new remake of the offbeat superhero film Hancock later, with suggestion of how we'd like to make it. Uh, and on the socials, uh, Stephanie says, it's a strange movie. It's kind of average, except it has a really good cast, uh, which makes it better. And even though it doesn't work, it's quite, quite rewatchable for some reason. Nick says the tone is all over the place, like the big shootout scene where he rescues the injured cop. Will Smith is playing it for laughs while the actress playing the cop comes across as seriously traumatised. Just didn't work. And Chris says, I'd love to see this tackled again. It's a great premise. What if Superman was an arsehole? But they didn't carry that idea through and has this great jarring shift in the third act. Thank you very much for your messages. We'd love to hear from you. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, 
from Akira Kurosawa's epic Seven Samurai to Park Chan-wook's period mystery thriller The Handmaiden. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or on the usual places on our socials. This month we look at a hugely successful French film which provides a wild mix of genres from historical drama to sci-fi and horror. The classics and recommended feature for episode 43 is The Brotherhood of the Wolf. So, James, what history have you got with this film? Had you seen it before nope. it was nominated for this podcast? Never heard of it. Uh, what, did you go straight into watching it or did you kind of look it up to see what it was about or anything like that? Yeah, I gave it a quick read, as I always do, uh, before getting into it. So, so from that sort of summary or whatever you saw about it, what sort of film were you expecting to see? I think exactly the film that I saw. Really? Um, how how would you encapsulate sort of how this film was like, you know, marketed or, or the or the, the 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 summary? Just a very kind of eighteenth century kind of film, um, but with a kind of more not f- like fantasy or horror element to it but it's about it's set in 1760s france and there's a beast roaming around um killing humans and animals and uh the king of france basically sends a group of guys to try and kill it mm-hmm. yeah um from my understanding it's it's they've basically heavily fictionalized a real event there was a beast going around killing people in this part of france at this time and it was seen as a an embarrassment that nobody could do anything about it. And then this big wolf was presented to the King of France to say, yeah, we've killed him for you, your majesty, here you go. Um, but it's one of those ones where people have like strung together some wild theories about what might really have gone on. Um, yeah. I just, pe- pe- the reason this is on my list of classics to watch, right, is that people I know whose taste in films I often share raved and raved about the film this it's amazing it looks fantastic it's like nothing else it's like it's got martial arts but 18th century france it's brilliant honestly the the great reviews of the film were ringing in my ears when i put on this so i must get around to watching that and i from my idea of the, the film the description that i was getting i was sort of thought okay well if, if my friends like this and this is really good what i'm hoping i'm going to get is sort of predator meets the name of the rose you know what i mean i want to hear that the conspiracy and the politics of the age but this mad science fiction horror creature running around kind of blowing everything apart into this kind of new story um did you i mean did you get what you were expecting when you watched the film were you were you you know were you thinking it was going to be good and did you like what you saw oh yeah i thought it was all right um it's a bit cheesy um but i think you get that with kind of most kind of swashbuckling uh, swashbuckling films sorry um, especially ones from two thousand and one, and French. So it was very, uh, it was very dramatic and very. There's a there's a, a, a there's a strand of French cinema which is like completely over the top, and I think this falls into that category, doesn't it? It's like they're just oh, kind yeah. of they'll throw literally everything at the screen, won't they? And that that's what they've done here. Yeah, I mean, no, I would agree. I was, I've got to be honest. I was a little bit disappointed by it. I thought it was I thought it was too mad and it had no control. And I think you can tell this film is made in 2001, partly because the CGI is terrible, but partly because everyone who who was making this film had seen The Matrix, right? And this is like a year after The Matrix or two years after The Matrix completely changed the game. 
And I felt like everyone was trying to be the Matrix, which is why you've got these extended martial arts fights and these kind of point of view camera shots swooping through the forest. And it's just like, it's just weird. It's, it's like I was hoping for the Predator Meets the Name of the Rose and I got Hand in the Baskervilles trying to be the Matrix. And I, I thought too many things happened. First thing, before we get into this, are you fully aware of what version of this you watched? Because there's a normal version and a director's cut. The director's cut's about ten minutes longer. Are you, do you know for sure which version you watched? Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Was yours about two hours twenty minutes long, or about two hours thirty-three minutes long? Think about two hours and twenty, maybe. All right. So you watched the standard version. I watched the director's cut because it was the same price to rent, and it was in four K. And I thought, well, I've heard this is very good visually, so I'll watch it in four K director's cut. So I don't know how many of the scenes I'm going to complain about are in the version you watched, yeah? But I just felt there were loads and loads of sort of unnecessary scenes. There's a whole bit of the start where the Native American companion guy starts having full-on martial arts roundhouse fights with some people that they're just hanging about with before they go on the hunt. Is that in your version? Where he's just roundhouse kicking everyone. They're supposed to be getting ready to go and hunt the wolf. And for Literally, reasons best yes. known to themselves, he starts fucking... They all just start having fights with each other and everyone gathers around. And I'm going, what the f... I, I, I personally think all of the, like, uh, martial arts stuff just didn't fit with the rest of the film. It's like he's a Native American, but he appears to know, like, uh, Kung Fu. I, I, uh, it's... I know they'll just say relax and have fun. I think it's what most people would say when I was watching it. But it did take me out of the plot a long time. And for the same reason there's all this historical context about 18th century France and the fact that the, the monarchy is crumbling and that's quite key to the plot as to why there's this secret society kind of behind the killings, or, but you don't know exactly what the creature is or blah, blah, blah. But I felt they just kind of threw it away and they were more interested in going, here's an exciting scene where people have roundhouse kicks. Here's an exciting scene running through the forest. And it was more about those exciting scenes than it was about telling any kind of coherent story. Am I Am I being too harsh on the film? Um, no, I see where you're coming from. I, I don't think it was the best film, to be quite honest. No, I, I mean, a lot of nonsense. I thought you're right. He just starts kicking, kicking the shit out of someone from completely out of nowhere when they're actually meant to be going and hunting this mental beast. Uh, it was, it was ridiculous. It was absurd. But maybe I don't know if it was because, you know, it was just. Maybe it was something that, like, it was lost in the translation a little bit. Maybe, like, in the actual French dub, it actually makes sense why they're kicking off with each other. But I didn't get that at all. No, no. And the thing is, there's, there are there are characters who, who come in and they're, like, part of, like, some group that's trying to investigate this, that are trying to behave behind the scenes, which is quite cool, a secret society trying to combat the evil secret society. But it's just thrown in for, like, plot reasons. Everything's just thrown in for, like, whatever reason. For Like, the main... The, the French white guy who's got the Native American companion later in the film is suddenly capable of doing all the things his Native American companion could do. And he turns up, like, naked to the waist with, like, war paint on and a hatchet. And he's just going, well, why is he doing that? Do you know what I mean? And why is he suddenly capable of doing all that stuff? And it's like... Uh, and there's a story behind what the creature really is. I mean, the CGI is really bad. I mean, the CGI monster is fucking awful. Um, I look, it, it was fine. I, I actually think there's a brilliant, there's an idea for a brilliant film here that they could have made. I've actually written it down on my list at some point to do it as a remake restoration, but I won't get into it now. I just think it was too many wild scenes and not enough actual kind of story that makes sense. 
And the story doesn't need to make sense in the sense of, oh, I don't believe that a creature that big would actually be out killing people. The story can be outlandish and weird and unbelievable, and hard, but it has to make sense in itself. Do you know what I mean? I just didn't think this did. Yeah, it was a bit of a mess, I would agree. The stuff I really like, I mean, Monica Bellucci turning out to be like like a character with her own agenda, I thought that was cool, but it was thrown away. The fact that the, the monarchy is kind of crumbling is an interesting idea to explore, thrown away, but... I mean, it looks cinematography is really good. I mean, you know, medieval France and the and the, the countryside does look really good. It looks really exciting. It's well made. They spent a lot of money. It looks good. There are some exciting fight scenes, but from the write up I got from friends, I thought oh, I was expecting a much better film than I got. But hey ho, the whole point of this of this bit is to say this is a film that that's recommended as a really good film, and the act of watching it, whether you like it or not, is a good thing because otherwise you're just watching the same same shit. Do you know what I mean? So I'm glad I watched it because you should always watch a highly recommended film just because you might, one of these days, you could find your next, you know, favourite film of all time, you know? So glad I watched it, but didn't really like it that much. What's your verdict, mate? You, you glad you watched it? Would you recommend it for other people or? Um, mm, yeah, I think, I think there's an element to it that it's just so mental that I think you should watch it. Yeah. Um, but don't expect much from it is what yeah. I would say yeah I think yeah Th- this is definitely one you you have this general problem don't you the idea of something being a classic all time great film you almost have to kind of relax and not think about that and just watch the film because if there's too much hype it can put you off this one is definitely definitely one to watch with, with no expectations just watch it and see it might be interesting to do an episode where if there was a way of us not knowing what the genres were of the film, and we had to guess. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's could be about eight different genres. This film. Could yeah. Be. Okay, but that that's that. Not not the not the most high recommended. You know, for, for example, we give an award at the end of every year for the best film we watched for like the podcast features and stuff. And I don't think that's going to be on the shortlist, is it? No, I doubt no, it. No, I should think so. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we look at a legendary Maverick director's very effective story of a Vietnam POW's arduous escape through the jungle which didn't find the audience it deserved at the time. The hidden gem for episode 43 is Rescue Dawn. So, James, what's your awareness of this film at the time? It came out about 2007. You would have been old enough to see this film. It was a 12A. Do you remember it? Did you see it at the time? Were you aware of it at all? No idea about this film. Is this the one with... um, This was the one with Christian Bale at the time. Yeah. So, I think... No. Before watching it for this, I didn't know anything about it. I think, even though it was... Build as a 12, I think it probably had a kind of demographic of a bit higher than that. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's set in the 1960s. It's a Vietnam film. It's, it's kind of, it's, it, it's a Vietnam film that comes out at a time when people have kind of stopped making Vietnam War films. Um, hadn't, there hadn't been a major one in, in some years, not really since Oliver Stone stopped doing it in the 90s. Um, I mean, I was aware of this when it came out because 
it had Christian Bale in it. I saw it, uh, you know, I, I rented it at the time. I didn't see it at the cinema. I'm not sure whether it got a huge release at the time. I think that is part of the reason this is hidden gems. It didn't get like heavily promoted or anything, which is weird because Christian Bale had just done Batman Begins, which was a pretty big hit. He hadn't completely gone through the roof with Dark Knight. That's that's coming a year later, but he'd done Batman Begins and The Prestige, and he, he, he was already making a bit of a name for himself as an actor. He'd done American Psycho and various other things. Um, but this just didn't really find an audience. It cost about $10 million to make, and it made about $8 million at the box office worldwide. It, right. it didn't hit in America where it needed to. Do you know what I mean? For them, the, back then, you're still in the kind of model that they're, they're waiting... They don't do quite. They didn't really do simultaneous releases back then. They would sometimes wait and see how a film did in its opening weekend and go, okay, well, I'm not pushing this around the world unless this does a bit of money in America first. Um, and it didn't. So, what about what about Werner Herzog himself? What's your awareness of him as a director and as a as a person? Um, I know he did that documentary on about the mad guy with the bears. Yeah, and he was in the first couple of episodes of The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. And came up with the most iconic quote um, from that um, from that series when they wanted to CGI Baby Yoda, and he went, uh, "No, you cowards! He's got he's beautiful. He's uh, do it as a puppet, something mm-hmm. like that." So that's all I really know about him, really. Yeah, I mean, he's renowned for being a bit of a nutter himself. He's also oh, played your fruit loop. He also plays the main villain in the first Jack Reacher film, where he's quite effective. You really believe him as a really sort of violent so evil psychopath. Does. Um, he's got that very distinctive American accent. If you if you listen to to Kermode Mayo, either the original BBC like radio show that became a podcast, or their new version, their take, Sanjeev Bhaskar steps in as guest host when uh, when the other main guys are on holiday, and he does this really funny Werner Herzog impression where he really does that exaggerated German accent. He's he's actually more known for doing his own kind of personal kind of weird projects like Aguirre, Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo, which are both about white men in the jungle but they're about Aguirre Rathagod is a conquistador conquering Spain he's a terrible psychopath and Fitzcarraldo is about a 19th century kind of you know European gentleman who's just got this idea that he's going to take a, a, a large steamboat and take it from one ocean to the other and makes people drag it over the fucking mountains from the from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean so it's all about these kind of maniacs on like missions that no one else would even consider do you know what I mean? Which is probably why he's done this movie, because it's about someone who has to survive in the jungle, essentially through sheer will. That's obviously what interested him. But it's a different. It's different. Uh, it's about. It's a, based on a true story. Christian Bale plays a German immigrant to America. Um, Werner Herzog actually did a saw, or there was a documentary, I think, about this guy, and then Werner Herzog made a fictional film. I can't remember if Werner Herzog made the documentary as well, because he does do a lot. But he's a, he was an Air Force pilot or a Navy, the Navy guy, Navy pilot, whatever, who gets shot down, finds himself in a, in a POW camp with some other Americans. And after a while, he realizes that he's not going to live through being a POW and he, they have to make their escape. And it's about that kind of desperate survival in the jungle. Um, it's... What were you expecting to see when you started watching the film? Did you kind of get... Sometimes you very quickly get a sense of what kind of film you're watching. How long did it take for this film for you to settle into the kind of movie that, 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 you're, that you're getting? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think pacing was really an issue 
for me in this film. But now that I think about it, I think maybe they could have been a bit quicker about setting the scene. Um, it did feel like there was a lot of just sitting down and filming. Mm. Just them kind of sitting down and having conversations, but probably limited with the budget they had. Um, yeah, and, and I think the, the weird thing is you've got to... I think you've got to show him being a pilot and flying his plane. But what that means is you have this big kind of, you've got a bit of an air battle and then a crash. And then the rest of the film is nothing like that. Do you know what I mean? He has this bit where he's like, gets shot down in a, in a dog fight and then crashes his plane, which is an action scene. But then the rest of the film doesn't have any of those kinds of scenes. Do you know what I mean? But if you're going to tell the story, you've got to have that. And I think if you're going to establish what it's like in the POW camp, you've got to have that. And maybe the reason that it didn't, it didn't hit is that while I think what he's done is, told the story the way it needed to be told. It's something it's hard it's hard to sell it to other people and say, well is it a film about a Navy pilot getting shot down? Well not really, because most of the film is after that. And is it about life in a POW camp? Yeah, but then it's actually about trying to escape. So it's kind of it has these three sort of very distinct phases, the film, doesn't it? Yeah. It's um I don't know I don't know how I felt about this film. Um I don't know if it was for me. Um, that's interesting I mean uh, one of the things about this because we discussed this with Dunkirk is that you felt there were a number of things wrong with Dunkirk uh, for those who don't like it I know there are people who really like the film but one of the things that you called out was that you felt it was a bit weird to make a 12 rated film about essentially the horrors of war which meant that it all seemed a little bit toned down and Werner Herzog who's not known for kind of skimping on you know scary and horrifying things made a in America, PG-13, over here, 12-rated film about POWs and survival in the jungle. Do you think that was the right decision? Um, yeah, I don't think, if, from watching this film, the thing that you would remember would be the actual violence. Do you know what I mean? Like, for me, it would be more about the kind of, like, performances and, like, the kind of relationships between the characters. Hmm. For me, at least. I mean, I um, think that's what he wanted to focus on. I, mean, I think Herzog at the time said that he wasn't interested in making torture porn and he didn't want people to think about the gory details. He wanted, he figured people would take it as read that conditions in a POW camp where even the guards are starving to death um, is not going to be nice, right? And that the focus is on the psychological effect of being captured on the guys and because there's a and then and then their attempt to leave and survive because there's a quote isn't there that the jungle is the prison they don't even lock up the compound because they figure if you want to try and escape mate good luck because you you know you're not going to last two days in the jungle without water you know um so it's all about the fact that they've seemingly no chance of escape unless they can somehow survive in some of the most inhospitable jungle and it's really about that and I guess you're right. What what he does is he does bring out performances instead. And I think Steve Zahn in particular is terrific in this movie, isn't he? As the as one of the other POWs. Yeah, I thought Steve Zahn was actually surprisingly good because I've not actually seen him in much apart from I think Daddy Daycare and Dallas Buyers Club, which I thought he was quite good in. Mm. Um, this is I think this is one of the first times he did anything that was like dramatic and didn't rely on him being any any kind of funny character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They yeah. did an okay job. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I, I thought this film was good. I mean, I recommend it as a hidden gem because I think this is a good film and I do think it deserved to be seen by more people. And I think there's a lot of things to commend this film. At the same time, I know exactly what you mean when you say, I'm not sure I feel, how I feel about this film. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean when you say that. Um, it feels like this film is made up of some really good parts right 
And you almost have to say, okay, I enjoy the fact that there's a dramatic crash and that's why he's a POW. And then there is this good part of the movie. It's almost like episodes, isn't it? There's a good episode where you see what it's like to be locked up and the relationship they build with each other and how, how, how hard they're finding it in, in the POW camp. And then there's the escape. There's an episode where they escape. And it's a little bit of an episodic structure. But if you, I think the, the episode or the part of the film, the act, say act two, where they're all locked up together, I think is good and well-performed. And, you know, the, the fact that there is, some of these guys are so traumatised. The other guy, is it Jeremy... I can't remember his surname, but he's in uh, he's in Justified. He plays the he plays the uh, the other prisoner who's like going you're crazy, you know the wait and see if they can negotiate a release. It's suicide oh, to go into the jungle. Oh, the guy from Saving Private Ryan, Jeremy Davies. Jeremy Davies, yeah. He um he's a terrific actor, and he plays that part really really well. There are some disputes over how accurately he's been portrayed. That his his family say that that you know that, that it, it played out differently. Although no one no one was there apart from the survivors who came back and told this story. But the fact that there's a decision about it's suicide to go out in the jungle. We've got no shoes. Why the fuck would we do this? And you can understand each character's point of view. You can understand and the the communal feeling of the of, the, of different people. I like that. I thought it was interesting with the camp guards because I mean the, the 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 POW story that people most remember from Vietnam is the Deer Hunter, which is actually an overrated film and, and a very bad portrayal of what it was like. I think this is more realistic and that these conditions were horrific. But there's this whole conversation that says, I think the guys are going to kill us or they're going to abandon us because they've got no food left. There's a famine, you know, but all the like food's been like burned down by American bombs. They're, they're starving. They're going to go home. We're stuck. We've got to go. Otherwise, we're going to sit here and die. And I thought it was interesting that it wasn't just a case of these sadistic guards are beating these heroic Americans. It was a case of, it was, and maybe because Werner Herzog's not American and doesn't have any of that baggage, he just goes, yeah, that's what it was like. That's, he, I felt like you saw a reasonable amount of everybody's perspective in the movie. So I enjoyed that. And I thought the the scenes of like trying to survive in the jungle were very dramatic, especially where Steve, because they're split into two groups and Steve Zahn and Christian Bale battling to survive in the jungle. I thought that was really, really, really powerful actually. But like you, I'm not sure quite how the whole thing hangs together as a movie. If, yeah. you had, if, if you had to recommend this to someone else, what would you say about it? I don't think I'd be recommending it, but um, if you like Christian Bale, watch this film. It's I just it wasn't for me. I just I think, I think you, it's you, hard to make a good Vietnam film for that kind of money. Yeah, I think you. I think you illustrate why I think it didn't hit with everybody. I mean, it's reasonably well reviewed by the people, you know, by the critics who saw it. The people who did go and see it, a lot of them liked it. It's got a reasonable rating on IMDb. Um, I just think there are some people this film is just not for because it doesn't. You know, it's. I think the thing that interested Werner Herzog was the idea of survival in the jungle, but that's only part of the movie. Do you know what I mean? So it's not quite. See, I did like it. I thought it was a solid movie and I thought it was worth watching. I think it's a good... If you're interested in the the the, the Vietnam era and seeing what an interesting perspective on a POW camp at the time, and I think it's very well shot. There's some brilliant shots of like survival in the jungle. No one shoots the jungle like Werner Herzog. I think it's decent. But I think... Take what we've said about saying it's not, you know, it's not a rousing action film. It's a kind of a, it's a, it's, it's a character portrait that then turns into a story of survival in the jungle. And I think both of those things are good and worth watching for that is what I'd say. I mean, 
it's not just I mean you, you've I think you've highlighted why perhaps you know it didn't make it at the time it's not an easy film to sell and not everyone's going to like it it was also released the same day as Transformers and one week before Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix and what the fuck they thought they were doing releasing this movie then this feels like a September October movie I don't know what they're doing releasing it on the 4th of July um but I think this is one we're a little split on aren't we mate I thought this is a solid piece of work that deserved better but it didn't quite hit for you did it Nah, not for me. Oh, well, look, never mind. I, I, I personally think recommend this. It's an interesting thing for people who are interested in Werner Herzog, if you like Christian Bale. There is some very good footage of the jungle and, and I think some very good acting performances that may commend it. Um, this Again, this is not the most enthusiastically recommended hidden gem that we've done. But what I would say is this is an inter interesting film. I, I think it's worth watching uh, while James is less keen. That's where we've landed. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films the top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at a project by Aaron Sorkin which was originally going to be directed by one of America's biggest names, but was undone by a run of bad luck. The one that got away for episode 43 is Steven Spielberg's The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, and this is, I, I, I found this story of like the unmade film in that the, a reference book that I often re, uh, refer back to, edited by Simon Braun, The Greatest Movies You'll Never See. James, you, you sort of first alerted me to this film because you watched the film that actually got made by Aaron Sorkin that came out like a couple of years ago. I think it was, was it straight to Netflix? I don't know if this went to cinema, but you saw, you saw this before I did, I think, The Trial of the Chicago 7, didn't you? Yeah, I watched it when it came out on Netflix. It was uh, it was a bit of a surprise because I felt like it sort of came out of nowhere, and then it got widely lauded. Um, has a great cast, has some really good performances, especially from like Sasha Baron Cohen and that. Um, but yeah, it's a completely mental story. I can't believe it's not like a work of fiction. Yeah, it's crazy, and yeah, I mean, it got released on Netflix in uh, September twenty twenty. I mean, a lot of people had other things on their minds, and Netflix doesn't do a lot to promote their films anyway. They assume. I think correctly, they've got so many subscribers that if they want people to watch their film on Netflix, they put it on Netflix, basically, right? Yeah. And you and you, you 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 know and you fire up your Netflix app on your laptop or on your smart TV, and and it's there. They you know they don't. Sometimes they do trailers and adverts for films that are coming, but sometimes things just arrive, right? Um. So what? Before I nominated this to be the one that got away, because I know this is my I'm I'm the most geeky about this particular kind of feature. What awareness did you have of a, uh, another version of this film that might have been made previously? Did you know anything about that before? Had you heard anything about that before? Uh, no, I hadn't. I, I didn't know Steven Spielberg was attached to this in the past. When you when you start to do some sort of digging before before the pod, what did you find out? Um, the, it was closer to being made by Spielberg than I initially thought. You know that way that... It's just kind of whispers and rumours and you think, oh, Steven Spielberg wants to make this film. But it sounded like there was a, something a bit more solid in it than just, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, this is a good director and this is a good a good story. Let's put two and two together. Yeah, it really did get quite close. Um, so this came out, or this, this idea started in 2007. Uh, Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay that year or maybe in 2006. You never know for sure when things get written. Um, and... Uh, 
back then Aaron Sorkin wasn't directing his own work. He was he was he was writing films for other people to direct. He wrote The Social Network. He wrote A Few Good Men. He obviously wrote and had a big part creatively in in, in The West Wing. He did a lot of work on television. But back then, I don't think Aaron Sorkin maybe he wanted to direct but back then generally speaking if he wrote a script like this his expectation would be that someone else would direct it and Steven Spielberg was uh, attached pretty early to make this movie this is one of these ones where Steven Spielberg came in and out you know later it was f- for a long time there was a plan to, to do this with, with Spielberg as the director and um we, did you find out who they were going to be casting as who? Because the weird thing is, is that the film that we actually got is based on Aaron Sorkin's script. I don't know how many rewrites he's done since 2007, but I imagine it's substantially the same story because it's a true story that he's told this way, right? So my assumption is that it's roughly the script of the film that we saw, but did you did you know who was cast originally to be in, in the main parts? Um, No, because... Um, it wasn't like it was again. I wasn't sure if it was just whispers or if it was actually who was cast. Yeah. So the, the background to this, for people who aren't aware of the trial of the Chicago Seven, this was a number of different anti-war groups turned up in 1968 to the Democratic Convention, which is where the Democrat Party was going to um, nominate their candidate for the, the general election uh, later that year. So the one that the Democrats lost to Nixon, um, who was the Republican, and Trouble broke out at that um, at that uh, at those protests. Uh, the mayor of Chicago at the time was uh, a pretty controversial figure, uh, Richard Daly. He was notoriously corrupt, brutal. Uh, this was a time when you know Democrat and uh, Republican. There often wasn't a lot of difference in terms of how you know vicious the worst people in their party were. Um, Already, there was a feeling that you know that his his um, his cops and his riot police were notorious for causing trouble. Um, uh, so no one was that surprised that people got beaten and tear gassed in the street. The trial though was really weird because you've got two people from one of the groups, two people from a different and slightly like rival anti-war group, um, a pacifist who was a Boy Scout leader who was just turned up with some placards. I think he, he led a group, but it was a completely different group of people. Um, and the the national leader of the Black Panthers who made a speech that day and then went home. So it, it, was, it was a weird collection of people to be tried collectively for, um, for crimes on the day. But that's what happened. And everyone, it, there's this suspicion that the whole thing was a very political move because there's no way that these seven completely different people, some of whom knew each other, some of whom didn't, conspired together to cause the riot. But Nixon came in in 1968 and said, well, we're here to take vengeance on these horrible anti-war people. America's very divided. You've heard this story before. They're very divided now. That's why Sorkin still felt the story is very relevant. And these people were just basically put up on a show trial, an absolutely disgusting show trial that was trying every, you know, basically... America is meant to be a democracy where everyone has the right to a, free, a fair trial, but you get, no one got a fair trial in this film. Um, and how the Black Panthers guy, who I think comes across as a lot more intelligent than they wanted him to, actually, he wasn't even allowed legal representation during the case. It, the whole thing's fucking disgraceful. So you can totally see why they would they would want to tell this story because it tells the story of like the fault lines in America and the you know the, the rights and the wrongs of of the anti anti war movement and a moment at which you know Nixon's Nixon could have started a, a descent into fascism. 
which was only narrowly missed back then. And they've obviously tried to descend into fascism again. It's clearly a threat in America that these kind of vicious authoritarians will honestly lock people up without trial or without a fair trial. And it's 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 a scary thing. Totally understand why they'd want to tell it. Um, the, the people that they were going to cast, um, it's probably better to start with the people that, that we did get. So in the movie that we got in 2020, uh, the Tom Hayden is one of the main kind of more supposedly peaceful uh, protesters. He tries to be more reasonable and sensible. He's played by Eddie Redmayne. Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman, who is a much more inflammatory type figure. You had Jeremy Strong from uh, uh, from Succession playing sort of the second in command to Sasha Baron Cohen. The lawyer representing them is played by Mark Rylance, and the, I guess the other big the other big name is um, Bobby Seale, the national chairman of the Black Panthers. In the version we got, is played by Yahya Abdul Mateen. So hold that thought. The people that we would have got if Spielberg's version had gone ahead, because these people were cast. Sasha Baron Cohen was still going to play Abby Hoffman, so he plays the same part like thirteen years later as the one he was originally cast to do. He was going to be in the, that movie back then. Um, Heath Ledger was going to play Eddie Redmayne's part. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to play the lawyer character, eventually appeared by Mark Rylance, and Will Smith was in talks, or I think maybe even cast, to play um, uh, Bobby Seale, the Black Panther. Okay. So what's interesting about this is, like, Heath Ledger, Sasha Baron Cohen, I mean, Sasha Baron Cohen is perhaps less of a surprise now playing more dramatic parts, but this is him coming off Borat. It's like, oh, wow, Sasha Baron Cohen's doing something more serious now, right? Although his character cracks jokes and everything. He's the funniest character, right? Heath Ledger doing that part, you can totally see. that's this. His time has come as an actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman playing the lawyer is totally understandable. But Will Smith doing something like this, this feels like a riskier part than he's normally doing back then, right? This is a bit of a departure for him if he'd played the leader of the Black Panthers. I know he played Ali, but this is different, right? Yeah. What 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 would you think of Will Smith playing that character? I don't know, man. It doesn't really fucking matter at this point because his fucking entire career's been ruined by that fucking bald bitch. <laughs> but um, yeah. <sighs> He's a bit of a weird one, Will Smith. I don't know if he would have taken the role because he didn't take Django and that would have completely reinvigorated his career. Because mm-hmm. as much as I love Jamie Foxx in that role, I think Will Smith would have also been fucking great. Yeah, he's too. this is why I was surprised to see his name attached to it because Will Smith seems too risk-averse to play a Black Panther. There's a but difference fucking, between... I'm sorry, carry on. He's, he's, there's <laughs> a difference between playing Ali, who was a boxer who um, was politically radical... And, and and play you know we we watched one night in Miami and Malcolm X is one thing the Black Panthers are one thing entirely F- very different to how they're portrayed actually the Black Panthers which is why seeing Yaya Abdul Mateen play him in this movie is very interesting but it, it feels like something that Will Smith would be too scared to do if I'm honest yeah I mean it's weird that he's he doesn't like these controversial roles but he'll go on a fucking podcast and talk about his wife cheating on him mm, yeah I they, mean that's yeah Oddball. He's a f- yeah. yeah. At, at, at the time, though, I, you know that we didn't have that. We we weren't aware of that side of Will Smith, so that'd be interesting. What about Spielberg doing this instead of Aaron Sorkin? What are your thoughts on that? Um, Aaron Sorkin's quite good, but I think, like you said, I think he's 
much better at writing, and I think Spielberg would have done a pretty good job of it. I mean, Steven Spielberg, he usually does a pretty good job of everything he does. So. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think Aaron Sorkin's a very good screenwriter. He isn't everybody's cup of tea. I think people who criticise Aaron Sorkin's scripts say, why is it that every character in an Aaron Sorkin um, film makes these eloquent speeches that sound like Aaron Sorkin? Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's like sure if that's not your thing but obviously I think the people who do like Aaron Sorkin say well isn't it great that there's all this fantastic dialogue in films watch A Few Good Men watch you know Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and Kevin Bacon and and, and Demi Moore with all this crackling dialogue what's not to like right so that's why he's a very well regarded screenwriter but he's not as good a film director as a screenwriter is he Uh, same with Charlie Kaufman Charlie Kaufman's scripts directed by other people are some of my all time favourite films unless convinced by Charlie Kaufman directing his own material and I think there's Aaron Sorkin's version of the Charles Chicago 7 is I think it's a good film I think it's well done but the direction is just it, it's fine Aaron Sorkin is perfectly fine I think there's a difference between that and one of the best film directors or the most you know skilled and gifted film directors that's ever ever lived making your movie um, I think the touch point for this is um uh, for Spielberg is there's a film that came out called The Battle of Algiers which I keep referring to it's an amazing war film which kind of pioneered this kind of handheld documentary style which makes you feel like you're really there Spielberg was a fan of the movie he made friends with the director of that movie he certainly used some of those techniques to make Saving Private Ryan look as realistic as it did and the reason I said uh, Saving Private Ryan is this would obviously not be as brutal as that, but I think Steven Spielberg would have taken that. He would have taken what he learned from his own filmmaking and from the Battle of Algiers, and I think he would have portrayed the war on the streets. That's what he'd have done. He would have made the uh, the battle, the, the the battle of ideas and the battle on the streets of Chicago really come to life cinematically, just because he's, he's a more skilled director. I mean, it's not controversial to say that Steven Spielberg is a more skilled film director than Aaron Sorkin. It's also an interesting time for for Spielberg. Two thousand and seven. Let me let me give you the run of films that Spielberg had, had, had done in the decade, or more or less a decade leading up to two thousand and seven. Right when he would have been directing this film, Saving Private Ryan, which is probably his the pinnacle of that second half of his career. Right then, yeah. a- AI. Interesting. Going down different paths than you expect from Steven Spielberg. Certainly darker and stranger than we've seen Spielberg for a time. Minority Report, dystopian science fiction. Catch Me If You Can, which as pleasant and 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 run and jump it is, it's got a little, it's got a little bit of darkness to it. It's got you know it's the the dark side of the uh, uh, of the American Dream. Munich. I think Munich's a really underrated film. And and honestly, Steven Spielberg looks at the Israel-Palestine problem and finds nothing to be hopeful about. Spielberg, the man who sees redemption at the end of the fucking Holocaust, can't see see a glimmer of hope at the end of Munich. He's he's a really interesting place for the movie he's making. Even War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds is quite a dark film. And I think it's really interesting that Spielberg would take... I mean, forget the terminal. He makes one film that I don't care about and a run of 10 years of very interesting films, right? But a lot, he was going to top that off with this film. I think that I think that says something very interesting about Spielberg. I mean, do you see him as a politically radical guy like the people he's portraying in this movie? Does Spielberg strike you as that kind of guy? Um, It's, it's strange because you've never... I've never thought of him as someone who has openly well maybe he has but i've never seen him say i'm a republican or i'm a democrat or x y and z but he's obviously got a 
a strong Jewish history. He's obviously a, a, a Jewish man himself, and he's obviously made uh, Schindler's List as that kind of like a, a project that was very important to him. But in terms of politics, he did do um, Bridge of Spies, but I don't know if that's necessarily politics or maybe just a Cold War film. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's, he doesn't strike me as someone who who would go on Twitter or on an interview and go on a rant like Bette Midler did about um, Donald Trump. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think he wears it on his sleeve as much. Yeah, I think you're right. But it, it is interesting that he was, he'd was he signed up to make this movie. And he, he didn't back out of this movie because he suddenly went, oh, I'm not sure I want to do something this politically radical. He was all set to make this film. He wanted to tell this film. He wanted to tell it Aaron Sorkin's way. And all we're really saying about this movie, really, the difference between what Spielberg would have done with this film and, and Sorkin would have done this film, I don't think the guy who directed Munich two years before this movie is going to soft soap anything. I think he would have made it more impactful. I think the scenes of Chicago police tear gassing and beating their own citizens and the sheer injustice of what they're being treated, I think he would have just made that more impactful and cinematic. It would have been, you know, he's done Amistad. It's a, a you know, a, a courtroom drama about, about slavery. I mean, he's got, He's got, I agree with you, he's got a political side that he doesn't wear quite in his sleep. But I think it's really interesting that he was going to just dig into this quite dark chap, dark chapter in American history. Um, and because he doesn't do this movie, he shifts away from that. And his career after this point, this is a real crossroads moment, because his, his career after that is Indiana Jones 4, Tintin, War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, and the BFG. It's like, quite like Bridge of Spies, but other than that, I mean, that's, I think it's a less compelling set of films than the one he finished before he went on that run. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. So, I mean, the reason this fell apart was the really the writer's strike. Um, there were a couple of questions on the budget of the movie, but the main thing is they were all set to make this film. Um, Spielberg was wrapping up production on uh, filming or shooting of... Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's due to come out in 2008, but it's got loads of post-production to do. He was going to go and film this movie before that, and, and probably and it would probably have come out before that came out, and then the writer's strike hit. This would have come out, I think, in early to mid-2008, before Indiana Jones did, but the writer's strike went on so long, nearly as long as the latest one, and there was threat of, a, of, a, of an actor's strike coming on straight after it. Because the writer's strike and the actor's strike this time have been quite long, but they happened in parallel. These were going to happen one after the other. In the end, it didn't happen. But basically, they looked at it and said, look, we're losing money while we sit and watch this. They had the cast. They were getting ready to shoot. But you can't shoot without a writer. Even though Aaron Sorkin's script is very, very well developed, the way you make a film is the writer is there. The writer is kind of going, oh, can you adjust this? Can we need to rewrite that? Can you tweak that scene? You know, we need to kind of shoot some other bits to kind of make some of this work. That you can't, you know, the, the script, you don't, shoot the film without ever referring to the writer again he gives you a screenplay and it's his job's not done do you know what i mean that's why quantum of solace fell apart because they they had a script but they needed to change it and they couldn't because of the strike so spielberg just went i can't do this i've got three four films lined up behind me i can't do it so he dropped out and when he dropped out the, the film didn't get the momentum it needed 10 years later 12 years later sorkin's still a big name he started directing his own films and netflix says yeah you can have the money to do that and we get the film that we got um, you, you you like the new film, don't you? You think it's a decent movie? Yeah, it's it's okay. It's a it's a good film. It's got some good performances. It's a mental story. Yeah, I mean, what what do you think the Spielberg version of the story below? Do you think it would be substantially different? 
Mm. I don't know. It's one of those films where it feels like it's almost it's almost filmed itself before you've started filming. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those ones that it's quite hard to do different stylistically, if you get what I mean. Yeah. I'm it's not, not sh- like a fantasy film or a psychedelic film or a supernatural or a horror film. It's just a courtroom. Yeah, I th- I think the main difference would be the the way this the way the film plays out, which I think is very good. I think Sorkin did a nice job. You don't you you see the the build up to the day, and then you see the aftermath, and you don't see what hap- You see what happened in flashbacks, and it gets pieced together. And by the end of it, you've got this picture of what really went down. And when when the riots broke out, I think it's very well structured. I think Sorkin did a great job of the script. I think the difference would have been every time you go back to a riot scene or a scene with the the Chicago police assembling and that sinister atmosphere, I think it's good and effective with Sorkin. I think it would have been next level with Spielberg. I think Spielberg would have really kind of made that really crackle in a way that Aaron Sorkin, decent director that he is, can't do. So that's yeah. what I think would have been different. I think, and also, it's not just for me. It's not just how much better this would have been if Spielberg had done it. It's also, I feel like this is missing from Spielberg's property. I think this would be a great way for him to to cap off a really good decade of filmmaking if he'd done this, um, because everything else after this is a bit meh. And I think this would have been a nice way to cap off a really interesting and much darker decade that he had from Saving Private Ryan through to the 2000s. And I, I feel like we missed that from him, which I'd, li- I'd like to have seen him crack at this, especially on the strength of Munich. But uh, yeah, if you want to see what this was like, uh, watch the, the actual film that's on Netflix and look at what Spielberg was doing in the early 2000s. I think that I think you'll get an idea of what could have happened. Any other thoughts on this, mate? No, I think you've done it justice. Thank you very much. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if this remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at the fourth version of a classic story, which even for the decade best known for terrible remakes is pretty redundant. The remake hate watch for episode 43 is 2007's The Invasion. So first off, your awareness of the film Invasion when it came out, mate? Uh, n- none, because I was about 10 or 11. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what what I did here is there isn't a massive theme to the features this month. It's just doing films from the 2000s means we're not falling into that trap of, oh, it's something Dad liked in the 80s. Do you know what I mean? At least these are relatively contemporary to you. Do you know what I mean? With actors you recognise and stuff like that. But it's not it's not something you'd have been going out to see at the time. Did you catch up with it in the intervening years or did was it the first time you watched it for this remake? the first session? time I've watched it and it'll definitely be the fucking last. <laughs> so... Were you aware it was a remake until I until I pointed it out to you? Uh, no, I wasn't. So the background to this is these are films which would be before your time, but I think you'd they're films that have kind of found their way into the canon. So when I describe the films to you, even though you haven't seen them and you may never see them, I think you kind of they're part of the DNA of of science fiction films, and 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 I think you'll get it. You'll get where these films are coming from. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a classic nineteen fifty sci fi based on a 
book or short story from the time where uh, aliens have come to a small town. They take over the bodies of people you recognise. So someone will be walking down the street who's the, your neighbour that you've lived next to for all these years, but they're acting different. And it's actually not your neighbour. It's an alien, right? It's a pretty standard alien invasion film. And it played on the paranoia of the 50s. There was a lot of fear. You know, the UFO panic had started back then. We did the Day the Earth Stood Still remake again, didn't we? This is from that era. And also people look back at it now and go, maybe it was expressing some of the um, the political paranoia of the time. Yeah, McCarthyism yeah. and stuff, right? Um, it's directed by Don Siegel, who went on to do Dirty Harry and work with Clint Eastwood a lot. So it's a very good and effective sci-fi film. The 1970s version of the same thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, has got Donald Sutherland in it, and it's directed by Philip Kaufman, who uh, co-wrote some of the Indiana Jones stuff and um, wrote the script for Outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood, all this sort of thing. So he's a, a much more 70s guy. And it was a contemporary interpretation of the story. And the 70s paranoia is different. The paranoia of the 70s is it's partly the government, part, you know, capitalism all of these things are like you know bearing down on everybody a bit more generalized it's like not all, you, you don't always know who the villain is right in the 70s but there's this general feeling that you know all is not well and this paranoia that you know institutions can't be trusted you know companies can't be trusted there's something going on in the background so it tapped into that kind of fear but it's still basically aliens taking people over but and it works really well it's chilling it's paranoid it does its job you would think then that in the same way that after they remade Scarface and after they remade The Thing and after they did one and The Fly that they would go, okay, we've done it. We've done a good remake. Well done us. Let's not push our luck. We'll leave it alone. They tried to remake it again in the 90s. It's just crap. It's not even notably crap. It's just not very good. And then they rewarmed this idea over for a fourth time in 2007. I mean, can you see why they would have wanted to make this film back then, mate? No. Not at all. No idea why. I mean, do you think do you think Nicole Kidman looked at this and thought this was an opportunity for her to kind of like be the lead in an action film or anything like that? What do you think her motivation was? Was it just the paycheck, or do you think she might have seen something interesting in it? I don't mean this disparagingly. Well, no, actually, I do. I couldn't give less of a fuck about the motivations behind whatever Nicole Kidman does. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. She marries Tom Cruise. <laughs> The, the funny thing about this, right, is that on the one hand, this film was made between 2000 and 2009 when just about every classic film from a previous era got remade badly. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Day the Earth Stood Still. We've done some of them on the remake. Hope Watch. There's loads of them. This is this endless array. The Hitcher, this endless array of films that people just decided to do again and do badly. So it's, it's, it's certainly no surprise that this shit remake happened in this decade. But they, they, it felt like they were aiming higher. The guy who directed this is the German, is a German guy. He's the guy who directed um, Downfall. You know that like endlessly memeable um, film about Hitler. Yeah, it's all about Hitler. He, and and that film is like a, a serious and very well regarded film. Um, that yeah, the guy's name is Oliver Hirschbiegel, and he he came from success with his European films, and he's a respected director of quality films, trying his luck in America now. Very often, when you're, you know, foreign directors do that, they get given some sort of very standard Hollywood material to do. Yeah, I get that, but they've hired a guy who's known for making good films. They got Nicole Kidman in the lead. They seem to be aiming for it. This isn't just a schlocky remake like the remake of Halloween, right? That they seem to be aiming for something here, but they've completely f fallen down, haven't they? 
I fuck knows, man, because as much as I don't like Nicole Kidman, she is a competent actress, and Daniel Craig is obviously a competent actor. Like they've been in some good films and they've put in good performances. So fuck knows what persuaded them to fucking do this, man. The the weird thing about this film, right, is that they actually filmed most of it in two thousand and five, and it would probably have come out at the end of two thousand and five, early two thousand and six, before Daniel Craig did um, Casino Royale, and it would have come and gone, and people have gone, well, that was shit, and then no one would have noticed. But the film got into real production trouble, couldn't finish, everything was falling apart, and they 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 basically paused production on the film for thirteen months fired the director, got James McTeague, who did like the Rambo remake and a bunch of other pretty low-grade action films, to come in and do reshoots, and they got the Wachowskis to do rewrites to try and resurrect the film. And I don't know if they did that because they said, oh, well, Daniel Craig's the second lead in the movie. Let's see if we can, like, claw back some of our money by releasing it and putting him prominently on the poster. But for whatever reason, this comes out. This is the next movie that comes out after Casino Royale. And I remember Scratch Man going, what the fuck is Daniel Craig doing in this? But he filmed it like actually before like Casino Royale when he wasn't as big a name as Nicole Kidman and is understandably in a more supporting role. So it's weird that it came out the way that it did and when it did, if you see what I mean. Yeah, the timing did seem off. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, Daniel Craig is good and watchable in this. It's interesting to see him as the supporting actor in a film going like, yeah, I'll turn up, I'll turn up, I'll be a supporting actor, I'll be good in the scenes. I mean... No, no burden on his shoulders. It felt quite. It's pre-Bond because obviously Danny Craig's version of Bond carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, and I love that. Do you know what I mean? But it's nice to see a lighter, chirpier Daniel Craig. Do you know what I mean? And it's quite fun to see him and Jeffrey Wright together outside of their Bond appearances. But there's nothing else about it. It's another fucking vaccine medical conspiracy. I bet you the fucking incels love this film. Um, it adds nothing to the originals, and I think when you have a film that's f- like completely fallen apart and then they've tried to reshoot it and cobble together some footage for them to try and make the point that they make about well maybe these aliens will make us more peaceful look at all the wars like when we're left to our own devices you think what the fuck are you trying to say do you know what i mean it's just weird it it, it stops being this perfunctory kind of action remake and turns into something a bit distasteful and you say well what the fuck are you trying to say to us are you saying that it's our fault that you know that maybe aliens should take us over and kind of turn us into zombies because we did so whatever it's a it's just poorly, the whole thing's like poorly realised and never needed to happen, did it? Yeah, no, it was terrible. Aside from that, though, same year, 2007, there's a film that I'd like to discuss with you. Um, that maybe deserves a remake. Um, this was my suggestion, so maybe we should start with you um, talking about whether you agree with me. Um, the recommendation for remake restoration is 2007's Hancock, with Will Smith as a, an offbeat um, like superhero who has to restore his reputation because he's a messy alcoholic, and uh, he actually no one likes the way he saves people because he does almost as much damage as what he's saving. Um, do you do you think this film needs a remake? Um, it's interesting for this one because I watched it and thought it was okay and I feel like if you were to remake it everyone would just go oh for fuck's sake I would much rather they'd just done it differently so if they remade it I don't think people would be bothered and it would just be a waste of time it's not one of those ones where they made such a 
like a cock of it that they need to remake it and do it again. Yeah. It was sort of like in the middle for me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I agree with you. There's so much superhero fatigue now that maybe remaking it literally right now isn't a great idea. But I think, I'll tell you what I think would be good is, is it, there's, there's two things that are weird about this film. There's a really promising premise, but they take the film off in this really stupid and weird direction. They're angels. And the problem is that he spent, too, he, you know, he lost his memory because he spent too much time shagging Charlie's Theron. It's basically, do you know what I mean? Um... He's, he's, you know, Charlie Theron's magic vagina made him lose his powers, basically. And, <laughs> and so it's 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 an odd direction that they take it in, having started up with an interesting idea that what you know a superhero like that is so powerful. What if he was a dick? What if he was completely irresponsible and an alcoholic? So that's that's a genuinely interesting idea. But the other thing that's weird about it is not necessarily the fault of people making the movie is that it comes out just before the MCU, like, blows up. Do you know what I mean? This is one of the biggest films of 2007, and it and comes during an era where you'd get, like, maybe two superheroes, superhero movies in a year, but sometimes none. Maybe you somehow have to wait till next year for a superhero movie. You had Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. You had, you know, they tried to do the remake of Superman. You had some of the X-Men films. You didn't have the all-conquering MCU where almost every big film is, is, is a comic book film. And I wonder if this film coming out in 2013, when comic book films are everywhere, someone flipping that story around and poking fun at superhero conventions would have been a, would actually have been more fun to go in and watch. Do you know what I mean? When, when the superhero movie becomes such a thing, to then see someone give, give this flip side to the superhero, I, I just wonder if that might have been a better time to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think the fatigue had set in as much back then, though. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's no fatigue. But sometimes it's better to do like a spoof when the fatigue hasn't set in. Do you know what I mean? When you go, oh, I've had enough of this. I don't want to watch a spoof. I don't want to watch Ant-Man. So fuck them all. Where if you make a film like this when it's like the peak, because like Airplane came out and was a spoof of disaster movies. And maybe a bit of a disaster movie fatigue had set in, but you could still release a serious disaster movie in 1980 if you wanted. But then Airplane killed it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas if you made if you made Hancock now, I mean there are a lot of people who are totally over comic book films now, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think it's it's kind of done, isn't it? It's yeah. weird. Yeah. But I mean, what about the original film? I mean, if you were going to do it differently, let's start with let's I mean I like the idea of Hancock the character and I think Will Smith plays him very well, notwithstanding it's Will Will Smith. Let, let's imagine a, a a really beautiful parallel universe where Will Smith hasn't turned into a dickhead. And um, we can just enjoy the quality of his acting. Um, so I think his character's fine. What about his powers? Is it a bit boring for him just to be a Superman surrogate? Would it be better to have some more specific powers or a different sort of power set? Would you Would you play around with that, or would it, Would you make him the same guy? Um, I don't think I actually had anything wrong with the powers. It was just when it starts going into like angels and stuff, and I've lost my powers because I can your magic fanny then spent too much you know it's like you shouldn't spend time around you know spending time with white women is bad for you was was a very sort of worrying undertone of this movie yeah did jada pinkett smith write the script um, <laughs> what do you mean she's got hair and it's blonde <laughs> oh jesus that would be interesting i mean let me let me let me check the credits additional material by jada pinkett smith um yeah no, so 
I mean, I, I like I like Jason Bateman. I like the idea of like a PR guy coming in to try and restore his reputation. I guess it's here's the thing, right? Let's not spend too much time on this because I think it's uh, you know I think we've given people a decent look at what we think of this and the other remake. If we're going to fix it, if, if if say they had come and ask us to script Doctor the movie, and we realised that the whole thing with like Charlie Theron and her kind of parallel powers, how do you how do you fix that? How do you give it a better third act? So it doesn't have that weird stuff about their angels and stuff. Um, I genuinely don't know, man. Thanks. What about what about a rival big bad? I mean, maybe he was injured by the other superheroes and they've been hiding. Do you know what I mean? Maybe Charlie Theron is a is the other survivor of their superhero group, and the idea is they've been hiding just for their own safety because nah, there's another power I'm, that's hurting them all. I'm sick of these general Zod types coming along. Mm. I think. What would be much more interesting is that if they took Hancock to court and they changed Jason Bateman to a lawyer instead of a PR guy. Oh, interesting. He's, he's got to try and defend him. And then in the midst of all that, Hancock proves that they still need him. Maybe that's when you introduce a big bad or like another villain. Mm-hmm. But it's in the midst of all that. And maybe the story gets interesting in the sense that, oh, well, we still need Hancock. But at the same time, even saving us from this really bad threat and this really big bad guy he still causes a lot of damage and maybe it's like, maybe Hancock kind of accepts because it seems like in the film he kind of accepts that he's just going to be a bit of a bum and he's just going to drink and that's all he does. So maybe he would kind of accept that. I mean, maybe, maybe, him, just going, maybe him just going to jail and not being able to intervene is the best thing for him because he can't do any more damage. He's, he's useful in helping people when he's needed, but at the same time, he's just causing more harm than he is actually good. That would be a much more interesting film for me, personally. What, what, what if the problem is not that he's lost his memory and he used to be an angel? What if the problem is being a superhero is just so fucking hard? Do you know what I mean? What if he's actually just burnt out? Maybe the problem is, is that he suffers from burnout because if all you ever do is, like, you know, stop burning airplanes from falling out of the sky and lift lift things and everything else, and, you know, or maybe there's been an incident that, you know, he, he was held liable and he was, like, made bankrupt or something by some litigious person because he, like, broke their ribs, kind of giving them the kiss of life or something. And it's actually... It's not a big kind of stupid magical incident. It's just, you know what? If you were a superhero, you'd probably feel as fucked up as he does. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just I think it just needed better writing overall, didn't it? To kind yeah. of la- la- land on an idea. Because, Jake, you've got the cast. I mean, Char- Charlie Theron in an action film, kicking ass, is always welcome. Jason Bateman's very funny, plays his part very well. I like the idea of him as a lawyer rather than a PR guy. I think that's a good move. And again, Will, Will Smith in 2007 is, you know, it's a happier, simpler time. It's Yeah, I think it. someone needed to have another look at this, basically, is, is all that it takes, really, doesn't it? And may, and maybe they would they would have been a bit luckier if they with their timing if they'd done this in two thousand and ten because people would go hey another superhero film I'll go and see that and then be surprised and delighted by the different spin they get on it do you know what I mean? But yeah, I mean I mean yeah, it I did all right at the time. The other thing the other thing to just bear in mind one thing that we will mention a number of times on this on this podcast because we talked about it for I Am Legend we talked about it for um, the day the Earth stood still the person who was involved in the writing of this film. Well, he was actually involved. He actually was involved in the production of this film, but but it meant that means he would have been involved in in the writing and the storyline and the ideas of this film. Akiva Goldsman. We don't like him. No, because he's responsible for the two worst Batman films. He's responsible for uh, uh, iRobot not being as good as it could have been, and the Da Vinci Code, and 
you know, he's just he's ruined so many interesting stories like Constantine and and, and uh, yeah, he's just he should he should stay off any genre and uh, stuff because he just does a terrible job of it. He should stay away. He's done you know he's he's ruined anything in this general area that he's touched. And that's just rule number one: is don't let Akiva Goldsman make films like this. That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Rescue Dawn is available to rent or buy digitally on Amazon as well as to buy on disc. The story of Steven Spielberg's The Trial of the Chicago 7 is told in Simon Braun's book, The Greatest Movies You'll Never See. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we'll be discussing our bucket list of films we want to watch on the big screen one day. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.